Fuck these fuckers. They don't know how to wash the goddamn dishes quietly. all you movie junkies and cinephiles it's time for the sls cast with your hosts matt and tim and welcome one and all to episode 234 of the sls cast yes ladies and gentlemen this would be the stanley's children's game variant episode of the sls cast because it turns out that there is a variant of stanley's children's game and this is basically a game where kids group of kids Groups of kids get together and then form three person three person circles. Um, so it's two people that hold hands and then one person kind of in the middle of them. And so it turns out that when you do a variant where there are only ever six kids into rings of at least uh, two children with one child at the center of each of those rings. There are 234 different ways of grouping them. Yes. I'm really reaching deep here, folks. But with that wonderful little bit of weird child game knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. And could the same idea be used in a dead baby joke? Um, sure. Sorry, it was kind of a weird opening. I thought I'd make it even weirder. Well, in that case, success. I agree. <laughs> so, how the hell are you, sir? I am well. I understand, Matthew, you are not feeling too well. Is it because you partied too much at the block party? Um, Actually, no. I... <laughs> Uh, just due to everything that was going on and all of the attentions that uh, were required of me and the heat and everything else and the timing, I literally did not get to have anything to drink at my own block party. Really? It was your own block party, too. I know. I was drinking water all day just to keep from getting dehydrated. And every time I would get a chance and things would finally calm down enough and I'm like... Uh, okay, good. I'm feeling good now. I feel like I'm hydrated enough. Okay, let me go grab that beer, and then something else would happen. Although I did, although there was one slight exception to this, um, I did actually get to try bacon vodka. Yes, you heard that right. Bacon vodka. Bacon with a K. And it is truly the worst thing to ever happen to vodka. Why is it with a K? I guess that's just what the, I mean, I don't know. Maybe they were worried that, uh. Bacon would sue them. Real bacon yeah, would sue them. Yeah. I, and, and they would have a case. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they would have a case. This is absolutely disgusting. But, you know, you, you always hear how bacon makes everything better. Turns out in this, in, in this case, no, no, it doesn't. It makes it just terrible. Um, and, and the thing was, is like they truly captured the essence of raw bacon and i think that's the problem like when you think bacon flavored stuff you're thinking like you know like like nice crispy bacon or or at, at worst you know kind of like a salty bacon bit kind of a flavor or something like that right um the, it literally like you you 
it was frozen, right? So even as cold as they could get it, you pour it into the shot glass. And when you smell it, it smells as if you had just opened a fresh pack of bacon. So it literally smells like raw bacon. And most people don't get that like, oh, wow, raw bacon. No, 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 no. They think to themselves, hey, raw bacon, that's about to be cooked bacon. And that's the bacon smell everybody likes. And... It tasted exactly like it smelled. Now, I will give it this, despite it physically tasting terrible, it was ridiculously smooth. No burn, sat well in the stomach, it just tasted terrible. Oh, I think oh. that was just your mind telling you that. Like Maybe. I need to make up for how <laughs> shitty this bacon vodka is. Well, you know, I think probably the reason why it, it tastes like raw bacon is because the Russians... Don't eat bacon. It's a scientific no, fact. Fair. It's it's proven by history that Russians cannot handle the deliciousness of bacon. Uh, maybe bacon has become too Americanized. I I don't know, but <laughs> Russians don't eat bacon. They they can't handle that much freedom in their mouths, right? Is that the? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you hold oh, up turkey that's... bacon in front of them, oh my god! Indeed, they just fall over dead. Uh, but aside from that, no, we had a, um, aside from just really not getting to drink, I still had a great time. Got to see a lot of friends. I, I, uh, did a whole Why'd you have to not, why'd you have to be on point? Like, what were you in charge of that? I mean, surely if you were running your own block party, that should mean that you should be the most drunken one. True. You would, you would think. And yet, so, um, you've, having been to my wonderful cul-de-sac, you know that I am not, um, at the, end of the cul-de-sac i'm closer to the beginning of the cul-de-sac and so our i've got some really good neighbor friends of mine who are actually at the heart of the back of the cul-de-sac so that's where we actually stage everything and that's where the partying itself happens so i did not want to previously i had literally dragged all my stuff out there the smoker all the you know the charcoal all the goodies and stuff that i needed for everything and then would spend out all day cooking everything out there, which means I can't really focus on talking to people very much because I gotta tend to the food. Um, and when you're doing things like, um, St. Louis style ribs that take five hours to smoke, you know, you're doing, uh, smoked, even the steaks and stuff, like I do ribeyes and New York strips, and those take about two hours to smoke. All that kind of stuff. I, I'm focused on all that anyway, so I don't really get to hang out very much with those people. And then it's standing in the heat and, you know, whatever else. So this time I was like, I just, I can't, I can't do that. So I got started. I had the ribs started at 9 a.m. and the party wasn't, didn't start till two. And then, um, just with everything that was going on, I was sending food down there like constantly, you know. Um, and then when I finally got all the food done, which was like around five, I was then able to go jump in the shower and then, you know, get cleaned up and then head down there myself. And then, of course, I get down there myself and then everybody's like, you know, oh, hey, come look at this. Oh, come do this. Or And so, yeah. Well, since you brought up bacon flavored vodka, mm -hmm. the significant other picked up a sixer of the uh, uh, not your father's brand of beer, I guess. But it's not the not your father's root beer. It's like the not your father's vanilla something beer, vanilla cream beer or. Oh, cream soda. Right, like a cream soda, sure. I was expecting, okay, it's going to taste like a dark beer, maybe like 
a vanilla porter, but maybe with the spices they put in it, it's going to be a little bit stronger. And But I was not expecting how sweet it, it actually is. And I tell you what, I would drink a bottle, and I had three and a half bottles of it last night. I would drink a bottle in maybe like three big gulps. That's how deliciously smooth. I'm, I mean, serious, like, I don't know how, uh, what kind of experience you've had with beers especially i know with vodkas it's a little bit easier to make it taste like a cherry or fruity or something like this or chocolate even but with beer it's significantly more difficult actually some years ago we decided to go to a liquor store to go buy just a random beer it was a random beer friday night and we've always heard that ballast point is like the best beer in southern california and i've had their sculpin and their grapefruit sculpin it's it's IPA bullshit out of San Diego, and just people out here like to fucking damage their tongues with hoppy-ass shit, but they have a watermelon sculpin. We gotta try the, or it's not a watermelon sculpin, it's just Ballast Point watermelon beer, and we got it, and I was expecting it to taste a hint, a hint of watermelon beer, but instead it is the bitteriest, most disgusting sewer trash water I've ever attempted to consume. And I couldn't tell you the last time I've actually had to throw away five bottles of beer because neither of us could finish this beer. And then we went to actually uh, down to uh, Temecula to go wine tasting. And there is a brewery pretty close called Aftershock. Their beer, they specialize in like peanut butter beer, cookies, and like a specific type of cookie, sugar cookie, and all this stuff. And we did tasters of it. And that's another beer that tastes so much like or I should say very much like what they describe, like peanut butter or sugar cookie. But I swear to God, man, that not your father's cream soda. I've never tasted anything beer-wise so damn deliciously sweet. That could possibly be dangerous for me, to be quite honest. I guess maybe I will give that a try then. I'm not a fan of the Not Your Father's series I am much more a fan of the Coney Island. Not Your Father's is is literal beer and ale that they have doctored to make taste like root beer, cream soda, or whatever the hell it is they're trying to sell you. Coney Island is literal root beer, literal cream soda that they have uh, been able to get to go hard. You know, if anybody can get anybody to go hard, I guess it would be them Coney Island folks. But yeah, you're right. I think with the Not Your Father stuff, it's a bunch of spices that they... Right, which for me, in the root beer department, for me, it tastes terrible. Well, just keep in mind, like, the bar was set incredibly low for me. So, (laughs) at this point, I'm just excited when I taste a beer that tastes exactly like how it's advertised, or somewhat like how it's advertised. (sighs) Well, shall we go uh, tickle the old mail sack, sir? Why don't you tickle that old mail sack? What do you say, kids? Check that mail sack, check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. Cool. And in our ever-continuing growth of the show, we're going to try not to have dead air this time. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) I thought it was pretty... I legitimately thought... Tim trolled me. I was, you know, because of the the whole setup that we had for last week. And then there's just like five seconds of dead air. And I just, <laughs> and I thought it was awesome. I laughed my ass off. But 
Anyway, so checking the old mail sec. Looks like we got about uh, 15 new uh, followers on Twitter. Thank you so very much. We do uh, appreciate all the wonderful followers that we've been getting on Twitter lately. And then we actually have a straight up, full on, legit email from our buddy Johnny White Trash. And uh, he says, So yeah, I got trolled. And he writes, First things first, I'm the realist. Sorry, some phrases have been hijacked by pop culture, and that's one of them for me. For me. For me. Okay, that one hurt because of my hatred for Bohemian Rhapsody, but it had to be done, so let's move on. I'm finally emailing in about Wild Speed Icebreak, or 8 Fast 8 Furious, as it's known outside of Japan. And yes, I did get trolled. I'm even going to call it double trolled. First, the movie was spoiled. That's troll one. Then when I got the barbecue scene at the end because they all end with a barbecue scene and dom was still alive that's troll too not going to lie wish he died <laughs> look everyone knows vin diesel isn't going to win an oscar from these movies except vin diesel if vin diesel were a professional wrestler they would say he bought into his own gimmick a little too hard have you watched any recent interviews with him he really thinks he is dom and us fans of the franchise forgive him for that or maybe I should say, we don't roll our eyes till after the film. I mean, he's not even the third biggest star in the movie. Which leads us to official SLS combined score of 4.5 out of a possible 10 stars. Fucking perfect. Because this movie, like many in the franchise, gives zero fucks. It doesn't care about plot, continuity, or making everyone happy. It's hard to call a billion dollars niche, but it kind of is. It seems like a majority of blockbuster movies these days always try to have something for everyone. Hollywood really seems like their goal, like their goal is to make movies that reach the minimum 7 to 10 rating to get the percentage on Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm not shitting on that. It's a business, and they want the biggest return possible, but the result, to me, is watered superhero movies. Except, of course, the few titles you can both point to right now, like Logan. Okay, I've rambled on for too long, here's my main point. I can't explain to anyone how we went from drag racing and boosting DVD players to shadow government organizations and the rock throwing a torpedo at a submarine. <laughs> but we did it. <laughs> and for a certain kind of movie, it's fun as fuck. And since it made a billion dollars, I can safely assume there are a lot of us. Everything you need to know about Fast and or Furious movie happens in the first 15 minutes. If you can't buy into the opening scene, then you should probably just shut it off and watch something else okay i really have rambled on long enough loved your reviews of this movie love the thumbnails on recent episodes love you guys and most importantly i love san Dimas. johnny p.s can't wait for the 10th movie called fast and furious x-men where we find out that the crew are actually mutants because let's face it we're not that far away from something like that thank you very much johnny he's absolutely right I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Heartfelt words, in- indeed. I mean, we might be possibly getting a Top Gun 2 with Val Kilmer, so... <laughs> oh, man. That's, yeah, as the Iceman. Um, so if you would like to send us an email as well, we would love to hear from you. Please send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, of course, please feel free to do that by following us at the SLS cast. So, I think without further ado, it's time for some actual news, is it not, sir? Yes, sir. And here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs>
first up from me, I have got uh, some good news here. Once again, this is, I, I don't know, I've kind of gotten on this um, kick. I don't know what it is, but it's kind of taking digs at James Cameron and the time that it's taking for him to make the Avatar movies. <laughs> but I can't help myself, so here we go. From ScreenRant.com, by way of Chris Agar. Star Wars 9 starts filming in January 2018. Yes, Star Wars fans are still waiting for this December's The Last Jedi to reach theaters, but Lucasfilm is already in the stages of planning Star Wars Episode 9 and aimed to start rolling the cameras on that film in January 2018. Seems like only yesterday, moviegoers were impatiently counting down the days until 2015's The Force Awakens opened at the multiplex, and now the saga's sequel trilogy is moving along at light speed. The marketing blitz has only just begun for Episode 8, with the unveiling of the teaser trailer last month and a bevy of new information included in the latest issue of Vanity Fair. Chief among today's reveals are photos of the cast and crew, as well as details about returning and new characters. Um, and I'm going to stop there because this is just a, it's a pretty brief article, but, um, it does link directly to that Vanity Fair article. So if you are wanting to know every little bit and see those, uh, see, see the people who are in it, um, and see some of the new characters and stuff like that, then, you know, hey, that is definitely on you. Head over to ScreenRant.com and check out this article. Star Wars 9 fil- starts filming in January 2018 by way of Chris Agar or Agar. Um, Tim, thoughts? I mean, you know, Lucasfilm kind of showing you how it's done. Or yeah, kind of, they They are, but I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it all comes down to quality for me. I'd rather... I, to me, it's it's quality than quantity, and I'm not. I mean, that's not really a you know me me kissing James Cameron's ass because I have no idea what the the rest of the Avatar movies are going to look like. Considering the first Avatar and last Avatar movie came out eight years ago, so uh, you know I I don't know, but I I, I think. Lucasfilm is now becoming, or the Star Wars universe is now becoming like the Marvel universe, just like a better version of those movies, or or or, uh, sure. or I should say they're handling it better. Uh, I enjoy the Star Wars movies more so than I do a majority of the Marvel movies, but I don't know. I, I'm still a little weirded out by the director, Colin Trevorrow, Trevinaro, Trevinaro, yeah, who's doing the next episode because i did not like uh jurassic world it just felt like it was a big corporate movie and there was really nothing i could tell that was like his style added to it because the only other movie i've seen of his was the little indie movie that we actually reviewed when we first rebooted the show and actually we both hated it was i forget what it was called um about this guy who built a time machine and he's trying to recruit people to come with them to go back in time. Oh yeah. And, uh, it's like, dan- uh, like danger or something like must something. Skill- hang on. Safety, not guaranteed. Is safety, it not safety, guaranteed. not guaranteed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he did that movie, safety, not guaranteed. And uh, he really didn't have a, a flair for it. It was just an interesting story that the result of it, you know, wasn't that great. And so going into Jurassic World, I really didn't understand why he was chosen because, I mean, it just felt like it was another 
kind of Spielberg-ish, kind of J.J. Abrams kind of knockoff in a way, and there was nothing unique about it. And so that is why I'm not too sure how I feel about the new Star Wars movie, because of what I've seen of the trailer of the second one, it just feels like another continuation off of what J.J. Abrams already did. And I understand that what J.J. Abrams did was kind of it set the standard of what the rest of the movies are going to be like, but... You know, I I don't know. I I just think, like, he just kind of helped create what all these movies going forward are going to look like. You know, he created that one specific mold, and all the others are going to create stuff based on that same exact mold. And very much like how the Marvel action movies, the superhero movies are. So I just really don't know how long that'll last and be as effective. Fair enough, man. All right. Well, I'm going to jump to one other thing right quick uh, since it's Star Wars related and then turn it over to you, sir. From StarTribune.com by way of Bob Lundegaard. Forty years later, critic who panned first Star Wars movie has no regrets. Yes. Uh, please remember that uh, over the weekend, uh, Star Wars officially turned 40 years old at Open Memorial Day weekend back in 1977. And it says here, As the country celebrated the 40th anniversary of the release of Star Wars this past week, we wondered if our critic, who panned the movie four decades ago, wanted a second chance. He didn't. (laughs) And here is the article uh, in its entirety because it is uh, pretty brief. When I reviewed Star Wars in May 1977, has it really been 40 years? It already had been named Movie of the Year by Time Magazine in May. That was the kind of splash it was making all over the country. I demurred. It's not even the movie of the month, I wrote. In fact, it's behind Annie Hall and Jonah. Jonah? Jonah who? I have absolutely no recollection of the gentleman, so maybe I should have moved Star Wars to number two for May. I've watched Annie Hall dozens of times since then and never stopped laughing at Woody Allen wrestling with a lobster or trying to back up a car in Los Angeles. Star Wars? I've never watched it since my review. Why bother? There are no surprises, and for sure no laughs. Of course, I had no idea it would become one of the most successful movies ever, spawning sequels and video games and t-shirts that collectively have grossed more than $42 billion. Who knew? But critics can be stubborn. I stand behind my original assessment, which essentially was, don't bring your brains with you, but your kids will love it. Mine certainly did, and they never let me forget it. My mistake was paying too much attention to the hype that had accompanied the film in its journey to Minneapolis, instead of discussing the film itself. What I had to say, what I did say about it was, in retrospect, accurate. Great special effects, silly plot, dialogue that wasn't very interesting. And I did point out that Carrie Fisher, unlike most cringing, hand-wringing heroines in action epics, was a take-charge woman, a sort of precursor of feminism. So, no regrets. There are many movies I've watched for a second time and wished I'd been more attentive. Early Spielberg, for instance. Or Breaking Away, a brilliant look at class struggles in America that I treated too much as a Rocky-style underdog victory. But Star Wars? I still think I was right. And that is the article. If you would like to read that for yourself, again, Star uh, com. Uh, by way of Bob Lundegaard. 40 years later, critic who panned for a Star Wars movie has no regrets. Tim, thoughts before you take it away? Interesting. I wonder if he's still, like, getting crap for it. Like, well, I mean, there's there's no denying that 
Star Wars, that, that New Hope, uh, is definitely the slowest of the three. And, um, there's also no mistaking Lucas's paw prints all over Star Wars, uh, all over A New Hope. And yes, while it was, you know, definitely saved in editing and the fact that they didn't have the ability to do all the stuff that he wanted to do, um, it's still a, it's still a very decent movie, but I can see how someone who, who, who would already look at this science fiction, at this space opera stuff as something that's not going to be in his wheelhouse would not necessarily just be, um, dismissive of it, but definitely would be maybe more critical going in because of all of the ridiculous hype that was going on at the time. So, um, I mean, it doesn't sound like he thrashed it, but you know, he, he's, he's not exactly wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it's, um, it's interesting. A new hope is one of those movies that I've always really liked. And I still think it's a great movie. I've always wished that I could go back to 1977 and be a part of those first few thousands of people that got to see the movie and just experience like what the audience's reaction were like afterwards. Cause I tell you what, like even after leaving the latest Pirates of the Caribbean or Fast and the Furious movies, or even the Star Wars movies, hardly ever anymore, at least do I ever see like an audience's reaction, like being very like pumped up after a movie and people like talking about it and exciting about, you know, like they're, they're genuinely excited about what they just saw. And of what I hear, audiences after Star Wars were just, I mean, they're blown away. They've never seen anything like it. And that's kind of like what fueled the love of, of, of you know, Star Wars. It was just something new and different. And I, I just want to experience that because I think I've got a taste of it with like the Lord of the Rings and maybe some of the Harry Potters. But I'm pretty sure none of those experiences even matched A New okay. Hope. Um, and, and maybe not, but I think that, I, I, I think though that you aren't giving yourself enough credit for the things that you have experienced as a first. Um, you know, like, okay, Jurassic Park. That's definitely a movie in that vein that people sure. were talking about. Yeah. Uh, undeniably, even, even the first X-Men movie back in 2000. Uh, that was definitely something that like really and truly kind of truly kicked off superhero movies uh you know and and that's just two franchises in in the time that you know we've we've been alive um i know actually having being able to be old enough to go to the theater and see you know return of the jedi and stuff like that i mean that because because i'm old <laughs> but i guess it's just like with star wars it was three good movies in a trilogy unlike jurassic park where you had a stellar first movie and as a little kid I, I liked the lost world a lot but watching it now i can definitely see how freaking hokey it is and <laughs> jurassic park 3 is eh, it's you know it's a jurassic park movie you know whatever to me that i mean i guess it's a little different just the idea of knowing like you go see star wars and building up in your head like oh man how could they ever top the first one it's so mind-blowing and then empire right. comes out and she's and, you know. and you're definitely and you're definitely right when it comes to lord of the rings lord of the rings i i never watched those movies in the theater um at the time um i i had grown up uh and had done the hobbit um i had watched the hobbit animated movies and stuff like that when i was a kid and 
while I appreciated it, I mean, I enjoyed the fantasy aspect. It never really spoke to me as much as it did, you know, the legions of fans that are out there. And by the time they are now doing Lord of the Rings trilogy, I'm, you know, 22, and I truly could not have cared less. And yet, I distinctly remember being out at the Grapevine Cinemas, at the Grapevine Mills Mall, and seeing people, just legions of people, sitting outside waiting for tickets. Um, and just going, what the hell? And they were talking, oh my God, they were talking just, you know, because I, I smoked at the time. And so, you know, even back then, <laughs> uh, you still had to go outside the mall to smoke. And so, and just to hear these people talking and like really discussing these, the, the, you know, the movies, the, the, the characters, uh, what they were looking forward to from the book translations and stuff, um, was, pretty mind-blowing and the closest that i can say that i'd ever been to something like that outside of you know the first jurassic park was when i went and hung out with a, a buddy of mine his brother and his family they literally sat in the parking lot overnight and camped out for episode one star wars episode one and um while that's not necessarily something that's really more than likely ever ha going to happen again um, because of internet sales and all and reserve seating and what have you, I I do recommend even if you're not into it, even if it's something that you think is stupid, um, if you get an opportunity like that, take it. Even if it's just to hang out for a little bit, you don't want to stay all night or something. Take it. It is truly one of the coolest experiences I've ever had in my life, and that it's sad that that you know. I think you're right. There is something to lament there. But at the same time, um, I don't think they're gone yet. I think that we'll still see some cool stuff coming up someday. Somewhere out there. <laughs> and I guess to an extent, all right, that's all right, how... Five, all right, Fievel. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you got that because I was trying my hardest as I was doing it to figure out where I got that from. <laughs> but I, but also, and I guess lastly, I'll just say that I, I think that in in, in a way... That's what people are wanting Gal uh, Guardians of the Galaxy to be like, to be that next trilogy of movies where you'll go and see them and get something different out of it each time. Well, what do you got for us, sir? I kind of hijacked this here, so... That's cool. <laughs> Give us what you got. Okay, so first up, via Jezebel.com, Whack Dork sues his date for texting during Guardians of the Galaxy. This here is written by Almi Lutkin. Uh, this was published here uh, the day before my birthday, 5-17-2017. And it says this, Too much applause, a Texas man named Brandon Vesmar is suing a woman he took out on a date because she texted during Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Vesmar is seeking $17.31, the cost of a ticket for a 3D screening of the film. This is bad. Texting in the movie theater is also bad. So very bad that it's understandable if you might consider it a deal breaker. It's even understandable that you might criticize someone for doing it, to the point that they felt things weren't going well and they should leave. In an interview with the Austin American Statesman, Vesmar alleges that's exactly what he did. He asked his date to stop, then he suggested she text in the lobby if it was so important. 
According to the texts he released of their conversation after the fact, she was talking with her best friend who, quote, needed me right away, end quote. She disappeared, and he discovered she'd left him at the theater without a ride. <laughs> Maybe you're Team Vesmar, but there are still more details. The woman was contacted by the statesman for comment, and it was the first she heard of the suit her brief beau had filed against her, saying, quote, Oh my god! This is crazy, end quote. Yes, it is. Vesmar has been trying to contact her for a refund on their time together, which she refused because, quote, he took me out on a date, end quote. She says he had additionally attempted to contact her little sister to recoup his money. This is creepy. Persistently harassing someone to the point of bringing a lawyer and national attention to your, quote, cause, end quote, doesn't make you a hero striking back against rude theater goers everywhere. It makes you a controlling a-hole. In Vesmar's petition against the unnamed woman, he wrote, quote, while damages sought are modest, the principle is important as defendants' behavior is a threat to civilized society, end quote. Give me a break, says the author here. As of Wednesday, the movie theater has offered Vesmar a gift certificate for 1731. If he'll drop the suit, whether or not he will accept it is not yet clear. In the meantime, he's been getting a lot of love, at least according to him. Where I guess he tweeted saying that, uh, at Brendan Vesmar said this, National media has been incredibly kind to me today. Thought blowback would be massive. Pretty much everyone, public included, supports me. And all quotes there. And apparently James Gunn even came out and said, why stop at suing? She she deserves jail time! Exclamation point. His tweet was from May 16th. Vesmar's was from May 17th. And this article was published on May 17th as well. Matt, what do you think about this? I think this is pretty interesting. I'll tell you this. If I took a lady out on a date to a movie, like a movie that I was really, you know, looking forward to seeing, I was very much looking forward to, uh, to seeing, I guess that's kind of like one thing you should never do is on a first date when you don't know how your date is going to act in a movie. Maybe you shouldn't take them to a movie that you've been dying to see. But maybe it was like in a mutual agreement. Maybe she she suggested it. And he was like, no, you know, I, I've been really wanting to look forward to this movie. Maybe a better idea if we go and see Fifty Shades or some something else. And, you know, I'll go see this one on my own. And then they go and then this happens. And then sure enough, he's $17.31 in the hole. I don't know. Like I, I feel for the guy, and I can see, but yet I can see where the author, I guess, is coming from. I'm I'm kind of going too much into detail into something that really doesn't really need any detail pretty much i just want to know what the fuck you think about it what do you what the fuck do you think about this i i think that uh seventeen dollars and 31 cents is a small price to pay to realize you know you're you're with a bitch you know if 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 i could have gotten out if i could have gotten out from under my ex-wife uh back when we were dating for seventeen dollars and 31 cents to save me the last you know 18 19 years worth of fucking hassle Bro, bro, do you have any idea how easy you got off on this deal? Um, I get it's irritating. I get you kind of pissed, but um, yeah, I, I still, I still maintain seventeen dollars and thirty-one cents is a steal. So maybe just let it go. Next up www.salon.com Tom Cruise confirms that yes, Top Gun Two is definitely happening. This here is written by Matthew Rosa. And it says this, During a Tuesday appearance on the Australian talk show Sunrise, Tom Cruise confirmed that a sequel to the 1986 classic Top Gun is definitely happening. 
He added that, quote, I'm going to start filming it probably in the next year, end quote. This puts Top Gun 2 on track to be released 32 to 33 years after the first film. Are Do pilots still pilot after 32 and 33 years? I, I don't know. While it's hard to say whether this was a sequel that people were actually clamoring for, Top Gun was the highest grossing film of 1986, so there are certainly fiscal reasons to think that cashing in on its nostalgic value could pay off. Nevertheless, some interesting geopolitical questions arise when you contemplate how the world of Top Gun could be integrated into the 2010s. Yes, and uh, to piggyback off this, I thought I, I thought this was... Uh, Pretty interesting here. Via taskandpurpose.com, five ways the 21st century military could make Top Gun deeply weird. And I'm just going to read a couple of these because I think it's kind of interesting. One, Maverick is now dealing with constant sexual harassment charges. Probably. Goodbye, Tomcat. Hello, F-35C Lightning 2. Episode 2, Attack of the Drones. And then and then another one here is uh, more uh, gratuitous uh, shirtlessness, which I, I'm pretty sure the bros in, in, in the Air Force now may not really take part of playing volleyball. It, they were Navy, not Air Force. Air, they, they were Navy, okay. But I don't think even the Air Force nor the Navy would play volleyball shirtless and look at each other the way that... Tom Cruise and all these guys looked at each other and sweatily hugged each other and cupped each other in bed at night. They don't call it a bro job for nothing. I'm just saying. Are you excited for Top Gun 2? Are you, like, (laughs) clamoring? Are you the ones, one of the people clamoring for it? No. Um, Quite frankly, I am am fairly certain uh, that I am completely done with reboots and remakes um yeah i i think that uh we just need to move on i don't even care honestly i don't even care if they want to make a new movie about naval um about about navy fighter pilots and stuff um it doesn't have to be anything about the top gun program or anything like that it can just be about uh, whatever they want to make it about i don't care um but they just need to leave that far behind and just be done. Um, it's simply feeding into what everyone already knows, and that while nostalgia is fun, and we have we are at a crossroads at at least in Western pop culture over on on the whole, where we have the ability to connect with our nostalgia. Um, and and not just connect, but literally hold to it in a way never before realized. And I think that connecting and revisiting it is good. I and I think that being able to celebrate those things and rewatch the original movies, even if they haven't aged well, um, but because of that connection to the nostalgia, is great. But remaking it does nothing because the because it doesn't create nostalgia for the people you need to get into the theaters uh people who are 20 today don't give a flying fuck about top gun so remaking top gun isn't going to get them to be like oh wow tom cruise is so cool they're just gonna look at that guy and they're isn't that that old dude from the new mummy movie I mean, which in and of itself is a remake, right? So, I don't know. 
In short, no. Iceman, stay home. <laughs> yeah, I, I I bet you if they didn't already make Dirty Dancing 2 Havana Nights, they would have made a sequel with the original characters from, from Dirty Dancing. So if those creative geniuses behind the Dirty Dancing first movie and the sequel, if they were smart enough to not exactly make a sequel, a direct sequel to the first Dirty Dancing and go with Dirty Dancing 2 Havana Nights, why don't they just do like Top Gun 2 Havana Nights or something like that? You know, just like another story based on shit that's going on now, but centered around newer folk where maybe Tom Cruise was a general or the guy that that michael ironside played in the in the original one maybe he takes over his role just minus the face craters yeah maybe that could work i don't know so i guess i will end my news with this in matthew Hmm. i will not end it with this because i think this will take way too much time but i will save it for next time i'm just gonna i'm just gonna end with my david lynch news birthmoviesdeath.com no actually did i fucking did i fuck my balls i did shit <laughs> um okay <laughs> so <laughs> Fuck your balls. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So via the playlist.net, studios reportedly blame Rotten Tomatoes for Pirates of the Caribbean and Baywatch tanking. Uh, Just because this is relevant now, maybe this is something that's interesting. And on top of this, I'll just say I'm not going to say a lot about Pirates of the Caribbean. So maybe that could tie into this somehow. Published by, uh, again, the playlist.net, written by Kevin Jagernoth was published on may 30th and it says this call it coincidence but today the playlist spent some time around the water cooler talking about rotten tomatoes and more specifically its cruel system that makes critics choose from a binary choice between fresh or rotten when submitting their reviews it means that something like wonder woman which we had issues with and issued a c plus grade comes out as fresh or nora bombax or noah bombax the Mirowitz stories given a B grade coming out as rotten, there's no nuance to the equation which winds up resulting in films perhaps being misrepresented. However, for all its flaws, Rotten Tomatoes is a powerful tool that audiences use to help decide what movies to go see, and Hollywood is growing weary of what they perceive to be its undue influence. This past weekend, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and Baywatch washed up on the shores of multiplexes with rather dismal box office results, though the former did strong numbers overseas. More importantly, they had terrible scores on Rotten Tomatoes, 31% and 19% respectively. And it seems like studio suits are blaming the poor results for Memorial Day blockbusters on those scores. Deadline reports that insiders are blaming Rotten Tomatoes for, quote, slowing down the potential business of popcorn movies, end quote, and essentially ruining what were once perceived to be, quote, critic-proof movies, end quote. From their perspective, it further doesn't help that the nation's largest ticket seller, Fandango, runs Rotten Tomato scores on their site. 
Ideas are apparently being floated to cancel critics' screenings for these kinds of movies, but we've heard that talk before, and it's unlikely to even happen. It's probably a safe bet that the advanced critical word on Wonder Woman is only to help the bottom line on that film when it opens this weekend. Uh, The article does go on from there. It mentions uh, Get Out and how... It earned $240 bucks worldwide on a shoestring budget, and granted, that was certified fresh, and if that maybe, or maybe not, got people more interested in seeing the movie, because most of the critics really liked it, I guess. Um, but Matt, what do you think about this? I think this is kind of interesting. I will say that every once in a while, if I'm on the edge of seeing a movie like Pirates of the Caribbean, now that I know that they are going to make a new Pirates of the Caribbean movie for sure... If the movie has a low rating, I I I I might not waste another fourteen fifteen bucks on, on seeing it. But I was really hoping that Dead Men Tell No Tells. Maybe the critics were wrong. Maybe maybe Rotten Tomatoes was wrong, and I would have enjoyed it more so because I thought Alien Covenant was so incorrect. I don't, I don't know. Like I but I can definitely see what what some of these people are saying that these scores can sway people's decisions whether or not to see a movie or go to the park or or something. But what do you think? Okay, so uh, like we were saying in the pre-show, you know, it's it's the whole Principal Skinner thing, you know? Am I out of touch? No, it is the children who are wrong. Um, this is kind of like the studios blaming people not liking their movie on the people who don't like their movie. It's like, well, it's your fault they don't like the movie. Well, because you made a piece of shit. I mean, it... Who the fuck do these people think they are? They're your fucking audience. That's who they think they are. So stop making shit. Pretty simple. Um, and that's, that's almost my review of Pirates of the Caribbean. Stop making shit. <laughs> um, the same shit, even. It's like. <laughs> and this is coming from somebody who's watched all the five movies in the last five days. Oh, you watched all of them, huh? I did. I wanted to go back. I mean, the first one came out in 2003. I never saw the fourth one. I, I, It looked so stupid, and I was pretty turned off after the third one. So I never watched the fourth one. We didn't cover the fourth one for the show. And then here's this fifth one. So I was like, well, shit, I guess I need to watch them. I need to watch them again. So, yeah, I watched all the movies, all the post-credit scenes, uh, because there's a post-credit scene in every single movie, uh, which up until – Number four actually played into the next movie. So I guess stop making shitty movies. <laughs> that's that's pretty much what it boils down to. And so. that's my news. All right. Well, we definitely have gone on a very, very long time with our news. How about we wrap up the news and move into our uh, bonus segment for this week? What do you say? Let's do it. And here we go, folks. It's Furry Square. All right, and this week's Three Squared, uh, there might be a little bit of crossover here, (laughs) because we're talking about our favorite Roger Moore era of the Bond movies. My name is Bond, James Bond. Pick one. Kananga, poppy grower in thousands of acres of well-camouflaged fields protected by the voodoo threat of Baron Sandy. A genuine Felix Leiter. Illuminating. 
a duel between titans. My golden gun against your Walther PPK. Six bullets to your one. I only need one. But James, I need you. So does England. Commander James Bond, recruited to the British Secret Service from the Royal Navy, licensed to kill, and has done so on numerous occasions. A British agent in love with a Russian agent. You've shot your bolt, Stromberg. Now it's my turn. Are you suggesting the shuttle was hijacked in midair? That's for you to find out, the Lucid. Mr. Bond, you defy all my attempts to plan an amusing death for you. Heartbroken, Mr. Drax. Before setting out on revenge, you first dig two graves. I'm here, Mr. Bond of the British Secret Service. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. That's putting it mildly, 007. You have a nasty habit of surviving. What they say about the fittest. He suggests the trade. The egg. Real life. I'd heard the price of eggs was going up, but isn't that a little high? I propose that end the domination of Silicon Valley. My department know I'm here. When I don't report, they'll retaliate. If you're the best they have, they'll more likely try to cover up your embarrassing incompetence. Don't count on that, sorry. <laughs> you amuse me, Mr. Bond. He did seven movies over the course of his uh, time as Bond. And these are my picks. I've got 1981's For Your Eyes Only. Uh, I have 1983's uh, Octopussy and then 1985's A View to a Kill. Now, these are the last three movies in the seven movies uh, that um, Roger Moore did. And this was my initial kind of real... I guess you could say um, indoctrination into James Bond was watching the movies. And specifically, uh, it was Octopussy and then A View to a Kill. I then went back um, and watched For Your Eyes Only and stuff. And then by the time I was about 12 or 13, um, my stepdad had went and got the the first first four or five movies so then i got introduced to sean connery and i got to see all the sean connery ones and you know all that good stuff so um i have a real nostalgic love for octopussy and a view to a kill which is why they are there i realize that especially view to a kill is not necessarily um while it did well with the, with the fans it was not critically well received and it was definitely a try hard um, and, and it's kind of interesting because it was a little bit telling of the Timothy Dalton era um, that was going to come shortly thereafter. And Timothy Dalton gets some flack, but I don't think it was all his fault. I think he did really well given the um, production values that he had. And, um, and A View to a Kill really kind of goes to the heart of that. But... It's a lot of fun. It was one of the, you know, for me, one of the more up-to-date ones and a lot more flashier and everything like that. Also had, you know, the Duran Duran soundtrack and all that kind of stuff. So you, you know, for me, it was 
really in there uh, with that, despite it being Roger Moore's last appearance as that. Now, with Octopussy, what I liked about this one was I really liked almost the egregious nature with which they have the whole... um, uh, the, the like the circus girls and stuff like that that Octopussy actually has in her harem and all that kind of stuff and and how that whole angle fits into the actual plot of the movie. It's not even a device. It's like what everything hinges on for Bond to be able to succeed all wraps around these girls by the end of the movie. And for me, I mean, you know, I'm like a, a you know, at the time I'm watching this, I'm like nine years old, ten years old. I'm just kind of butting into what it means to be like, oh, that girl's cute. Does just barely starting to get into that kind of stuff, right? And then you combine it with the suave, debonair voice of Roger Moore, Sir Roger Moore. And, I mean, you're like, oh, God, are you kidding me? This was so good. It was so much fun to watch. Um, definitely some of the best stunts uh, from the Roger Moore era, I felt, were in Octopussy as well. So, um, and I'm kind of going backwards here. Sorry for going in reverse chronological order. And then, of course, 1981's For Your Eyes Only. Um, what got me on this, which is so funny, is that um, the song For Your Eyes Only was my one of my mom's uh, favorite, favorite songs. And if I remember, this was Sheena Easton? saying this one i think so um at any rate um yeah sung by sheena easton so i remember that hearing that growing up all the time and so eventually my mom had me watch the movie and really these movies while you can start to see the decline in quality, especially by Octopussy. I mean, come on, Octopussy is a fun movie for sure, but it's not the most solid entry. You gotta, I mean, you come on, you gotta be honest. Um, and especially with A View to a Kill, which is just completely trying way too hard to be over the top. But for your eyes only, these are all really good, uh, movies and what actually kind of got me into James Bond on the whole. So, um, and clearly they must have been doing something right because the two biggest uh the, the two biggest entrants into the franchise have been Sean Connery and Roger Moore. So um these are my movies. The last three in the series for Roger Moore, 1981's For Your Eyes Only, 1983's Octopussy, and 1985's A View to a Kill. Not a bad run for a twelve year movie action time. What do you got there, Tim? For British Eyes Only did you ever watch Arrest Development when Charlize Theron was the British? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and she's not exactly all there. Yeah. <laughs> My three squared. The son of a London policeman, Sir Roger Moore, failed at becoming an artist after dropping out of school at the age of 15, but eventually found his footing after enrolling in the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and serving time as an officer in the British Army. In the 40s, he found himself in Hollywood playing various roles in costume dramas and then had no success in a number of television shows in the 50s and 60s. It wasn't until Moore moved back to England when it became apparent that he'd made the right decision to dedicate his life to the dramatic arts. 
In England, Moore landed the lead in the highly popular series The Saint, which he played Simon Templar for 118 episodes from 1962 until 1969. Live and Let Die, his debut as Bond, wouldn't land in theaters for another four years in 1973. He became James Bond at 44 years old, making him two years older than Sean Connery, but unable to take hold the reins from Connery, having to wait out George Lazenby's brief run with On Her Majesty's Secret Service in 1968, and a surprising return from Sean Connery in Diamonds Are Forever in 1971, before writing the series high for a solid dozen years. Moore was actually in line to debut as Bond in On Her Majesty's Secret Service after Sean Connery mentioned a retirement from Bond during and solidifying his retirement after the filming of You Only Live Twice, which came out in 1967. Connery was tired of the ongoing harassment by reporters and photographers, as well as the lack of privacy brought on by the worldwide success the role had brought to him. I mean, he was followed and confronted by mobs of fans in the media while in Japan shooting You Only Live Twice, which seemed to be the straw that broke the Sean Connery camel's back. Now, despite making friends already with the Bond producers while randomly playing cards while shooting the Saint TV series, Moore ultimately lost the role to Lazenby due to his non-Bond-like appearance. He was a bit pudgy, and he still had his obligations with the Saint TV show. Now, sometime before being cast in Live and Let Die, and sometime after Lazenby's decision to not sign on for six more films, and then Connery's return in Diamonds Are Forever after much persuasion and a hefty payment from the producers, Roger Moore lost 17 pounds, cut his hair, and became the James Bond which author Ian Fleming saw himself as, one that Sean Connery was not. And as according to producer Henry Saltzman, quote, a kind of disenfranchised member of the establishment, end quote. According to film critic A.O. Scott, Sir Roger Moore was the Generation X James Bond, it wasn't his series of seven Bond films that were made to suit Roger Moore. It was Roger Moore who was made to suit the series of seven Bond films. These films contained over-the-top action set pieces and character performances, ridiculous premises, and more than one attempt at experimenting with a formula and with the idea of there being some meaningful character depth and progression. I mean, to be honest, you see the beginnings of experimentation at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service when Bond's wife gets shot by Blofield. But despite the hit-or-miss radio-friendly pop songs used for the opening titles and the uptick in double entendres in which many still genuinely are cheeky, but many others are very embarrassing, <laughs> now at least, Roger Moore became the modern James Bond, who lived and fought in our modern world. And that's something that the younger folks in the late 70s, early 80s, and mid-70s, I suppose, who could relate to. And I just think that Sir Roger Moore was simply the cool Bond, who just effortlessly but effectively worked his way from mission to mission. I went back last November or so, 
watched all the James Bond movies, and that's the first time I watched them so close together, one after another, and I was impressed that I, I've never realized how some of the earlier Bond movies, especially the Roger Moore movies, into the Timothy Dalton movies, and even the Pierce Brosnan movies, how a lot of the, the character attributes and things that happened in past movies, and like with Bond's wife when she dies at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service, how all that just carried over in each movie. And in some of them, not all of them, but in some of them, you can really see where some of that angst settles and how it affects him during that certain mission when it comes to a woman. What you notice a lot in the earlier Roger Moore movies, like in Live and Let Die, he's more sexual, he's more over-the-top cheeky, and just kind of like your your classic James Bond sex machine guy. But there are other movies, which I'm about to mention here in a second, where there is actual character growth, where he has to make a decision. And it's all because of things that happen in previous movies. And so I'm going to begin with the Bond movie that introduced me to Roger Moore's James Bond, and that was 1974's The Man with the Golden Gun. Yes, we all know this one as the Christopher Lee bad guy movie with the little dude in it. Always knew who Christopher Lee was. I used to watch the old Dracula movies when I was a kid from the 60s and 70s, and that's how I knew Christopher Lee. So the idea of him being, I think he was playing an Italian or, or, or a Spaniard, very interesting. And I was always so impressed with that end boss bad guy scene, because as a kid, you know, like all the great action movies, there has to be that boss bad guy scene where there's something that that the good guy has to get through before he can ultimately destroy the bad guy. And of course, what stood out for me the most was the ending chase scene through that maze of mirrors in the funhouse. And as a kid, I thought the idea of it was so cool. Later on, what I think is so stupid <laughs> and so ridiculous was just so neat and so inventive. And when I went back and recently rewatched all these, I realized that this is kind of when Roger Moore's Bond is now gonna turn more into specifically what you would think of being the Roger Moore James Bond movies. Because Sean Connery easily could have been in The Man with the Golden Gun. Sean Connery could also easily have been in Live and Let Die. And, you know, maybe one other. But the rest, I think, from here on out are very much the Roger Moore movies, where only he could really pull off that charm and charisma that a lot of other just really couldn't without being overly creepy. And so my next one is from 1977, The Spy Who Loved Me, and then finally 1981's For Your Eyes Only, which the great thing about For Your Eyes Only, since I know Matt talked about this a little bit, I really liked how it opened. It opened in a very interesting uh, inventive way, I thought. It opens pretty much with Blofield's death. You know, like like the main antagonist in the Bond franchise. It opens with his death. He dies. And that's before the opening credits. You know, that's like the opening scene. And with killing off Blofield, that pretty much tells the audience that the series is now moving on from it. It's becoming its own thing. Granted, that was 1981, and... Roger Moore's time with the franchise is, you know, very limited at this point. But it was just something that was kind of mind, you know, not mind-blowing, I shouldn't say, but just something that was very interesting. It was a cool little risk. And then with The Spy Who Loved Me from 1977, which was my all-time favorite Roger Moore-era Bond film, it's just absolutely wonderful. Because this is Bond who falls in love with a woman, a Russian KGB operative, 
But he killed her husband, who was a KGB spy, at the beginning of the movie. And they're both working together to figure out where these nuclear warheads are located. Bond is using her to figure out where these are, like she's helping her in some way. And she's using him because she wants to figure out who killed her husband. And, of course, he's falling in love with her, and she's falling in love with him, and then at the end it's revealed what exactly happened. And... It actually has some consequences. You know, it, it takes kind of a toll on, on James Bond. And that, again, is something very interesting. And that falls into the whole line of stuff that I mentioned before, where his movies were taking chances. They weren't afraid to do something a little bit different. Granted, a lot of stuff was incredibly wacky, a little too over the top, and did not work. But there were many little tiny morsels that I just appreciated so very much. So again, my three Roger Moore era James Bond flicks are The Man with the Golden Gun from 1974, purely nostalgic reasons, I'll say that, The Spy Who Loved Me from 1977, and finally, For Your Eyes Only from 1981. Right on, right on. Okay, well that brings us to the end of 3 Squared. And next week we are going to be doing a, a part one of a two-part discussion <clears throat> masterpiece discussion on the Netflix documentary Five Came Back. So we're going to talk about, um, we're going to have a discussion about the uh, actual documentary itself, which, uh, of course, available on Netflix, so you can check that out. And then um, in the following week for episode 236, we're going to have part two of that discussion, which we, we are, uh, which will be about the actual films themselves that are discussed in the documentary stuff that the actual directors had done during the war which is what five came back is about it's about five of the greatest uh, directors of classic hollywood um who turned their time and attentions to filmmaking in for the war effort and then of course what happened after they came back so part one of course will be the discussion of the documentary and then uh, the second part will actually look at those the directors and the work that they did during the war and their first films after they came back so that's what's up there and uh i guess we are ready for the movies are we not sir let's do it here we go folks it's the movies <laughs> And this week's movies are Wild Seed, Southern Comfort, and Pirates of the Caribbean. So, um, which one do you want to start with, sir? How about Wild Seed? Okay, Wild Seeds. 1965 uh, film directed by Brian G. Hutton. It is a black and white film and features uh, Michael Parks, who we discussed last week, one of the character actors who passed away, uh, in his very first role, and Celia Kane, uh, who uh, was an actress of the day. You want to hear the truth? You really want to hear it, huh? Do you? Yes. That real daddy of yours doesn't want you. He never wrote any letters. Your mother wrote them herself. She made up a whole story for you. What about the pictures? There are no buts. They stayed together a few days. They only knew each other for a little while. There was no love. There was no amnesia. There was no letters. 
There was no killed in the war. It's all a bunch of garbage. You got it straight now. Paco. Yeah. We can go now. Go where? See what we have to do. About what? About us. There ain't no us. You won't even try? For what? Hey, nobody works me. Nobody. I work them. You get it? What about our babies? Forget it. We're the wrong two people. You go home. You go back to New York. You find you a nice guy that takes the babies and the bills and all that jazz. I don't want it. All right. So what we have here is a young girl who is adopted and discovers that um, her she does have a father after all she didn't think that she did and through some letters from her mom or that her, that her mom had or whatever and then she decides to go out on her own and find her dad you know and and make her life what it should have been in the first place along the way life is hard she comes across another young man and they bond in their own kind of homeward bound journey at any rate so that's kind of the crux of the film the the, the movie itself is um it's got, I mean, it's definitely got some really interesting characterizations and everything like that. I think that the story the movie was trying to tell in terms of kind of a coming-of-age film, especially for Daphne, played by Celia Kane, played off very well against kind of the whole rebel, you know, uh, Fargo, played by Michael Parks. But despite there being a really good, like, like the story it was trying to tell was a really interesting story, and despite it... Uh, it having some interesting characterizations. I just, I mean, it, it felt more like serialized television than it. Like if they if they did made for TV movies back then, that's kind of what it felt like. I don't think it. I don't think it crosses into spoof worthy territory by any stretch of the imagination. This is not something that you would necessarily see, you know, on MST3K or something of that ilk. But it's definitely tropey and try hard, uh, even for the day. So. Despite the characterizations and a story that would have been worthwhile had it been presented better, uh, i got to give this one 2.75 out of 5. Better than okay. Can't quite say I liked it. Tim? Yeah, not much to say on my end about this one. I feel pretty much the exact same way. Uh, you have like the cheesy music that I think was even dated for 1965. Granted, the movie was made in 1963, but it, it was still just a little too corny. Or maybe that was kind of what... Marlon Brando, who produced the movie, was maybe going for, was trying to go back as like a throwback to the 1950s, which would have been just a few years before. I don't know. But the real selling point for this movie, for me, was the cinematography, which was done by Conrad Hall. And Conrad Hall is an Academy Award winning cinematographer. He won for Butch Cassidy in 1969, uh, American Beauty, and even Road to Perdition. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2003, so he really didn't get to accept his Oscar. Not really didn't get to accept it. He definitely didn't get to accept his Oscar, but he still won it. Uh, but he was also nominated for The Professionals, In Cold Blood, The Day of the Locust, Tequila Sunrise, Searching for Bobby Fischer, and His Civil Action. 
And what really is captivating or interesting about the cinematography is that it really makes you feel like you are there. There's one scene in particular where Michael Parks is trying to get money from people. And they start off in this little walkway area that looks like it's like an outside indoor outdoor mall area. I, I don't I don't know, like like a little shopping area or something. He's asking for money and it's very, you know, it's dark and there's a lot of shadows and you know it's not it's not completely lit all too well, which makes it feel like he's an outcast, you know, in, in a bustling world, which is what they were trying to go for, I'm sure, because, I mean, th- these two characters are runaways. They're they're like the poor folk amongst the riches, the rich people who are out shopping and going about their business, I suppose. And then the camera moves out, follows him outside, and then it's the city and it's light outside. It's just really interesting camera work for its time. And you've seen it before, and it's just what really kind of caught my eye. And so I looked into it, and it was Conrad Hall. That is my main driving factor for sitting down and watching this movie from start to finish without batting an eye, I guess, because I just wanted to see what else he was going to do. So I believe I, too, am going to give it 2.75 out of 5. I know the movie does have quite a big following, so I don't know. Just just check it out. Very good. Okay. And uh, where do you want to go from here, sir? How about Soko? All right. 1981's Southern Comfort. Not to be confused with other Southern Comfort films. There's like a documentary out there from like 2001 or something like that. So you're definitely looking for the 1981 Southern Comfort film. Uh, it's an action thriller film uh, directed by Walter Hill. And it stars Keith Carradine, Powers Booth, uh, along with like uh, Fred Ward, T.K. Carter, um, <coughs> and other character actors of the day. The film is actually set in 1973 and is about a bunch of National Guard guys who are out doing their weekendo service in the backwoods of, uh, and backwaters of Louisiana, whereupon they come across some Cajuns who they, uh, well, let's just say shenanigans ensue, right? It will show you as much about survival as deliverance. As much about human courage as Midnight Express. As much about armed conflict as Apocalypse Now. The bayous of Louisiana. The home of a little understood group of Americans. They're a peaceful people as long as they're left alone. The National Guard on weekend maneuvers. In 48 hours, they'll be home with their families. There's only one problem. We live back in here. This is our home. They've crossed the boundary into a territory where they don't belong. We ran into some people that are real weird, and I think maybe they're trying to kill us. They violated laws they never knew existed. Somebody figure out where the hell we're going and do it quick. We gotta go east to go north. Damn damn. And the farther they go, the closer they get to the I'm gonna do it. But I'm gonna fight my way out of here. Southern Comfort. It's the land of hospitality. Unless you don't belong there. This movie, which is so interesting, uh, what's interesting about this movie is that it contains, even in the uh, trailer, There's, if nothing else, check out the trailer on YouTube, and it says how it's like uh, got elements of uh, Apocalypse Now in it, and it's got uh, elements of um, Deliverance and stuff like that, and, and I can see that these are definitely uh, 
themes and stuff that it's striving for. Uh, but in actuality, some of the things that it really has more in common with, uh, even though I don't believe, I believe it's way too early for that, um, would be First Blood. And there's, um, I think it kind of goes to the heart of what people think they're doing when they are quote unquote serving their country versus what people are actually doing when they are playing soldier. And it also has a lot of themes in terms of just exactly how far do you go when, when you don't really know what you're doing or where you are. Um, yeah, they take things a little too far in terms of the, the Cajun people who they're attacking and they attack and blah, blah, blah. It turns into kind of this thing. Um, but the character studies are actually kind of cool. That being said, this movie also suffers from too much tropiness and too much try hard. Um, Powers Booth especially is really guilty of this. The only person, uh, and, and I know that Powers Booth is kind of the reason why we watch this movie, but the only actor who I really felt didn't ham it up in any way shape or form or take the characterization too far was Keith Carradine um most everybody else just kind of it's almost like um the director was just kind of there to make sure the lines were said I don't feel like I don't feel like it was necessarily, you know, just cut, print, move on. But at the same time, I don't feel like there was any real clear vision for what was happening on the scene other than just to have the scene play out. And um, and so consequently, everybody just seems to kind of take their characters way too far, or the characterizations themselves way too far. And it makes it just feel overdone overacted a lot and i would say powers booth is guilty of this not nearly as much as the other actors um but to a larger degree um and that's why i felt i don't know like i said keith carradine just smoother in that regard to me so um again on this one there it's it's not that it's a bad movie uh there are definitely some really interesting themes and really uh and and um kind of an interesting story in and of itself but at the end of the day also 2.75 out of 5 definitely better than okay uh but i didn't really like it either i enjoyed it a little bit more it reminds me of one of those movies if like uh in the in the mid 90s or late 90s where like it's a it's a hot saturday hot balmy saturday or sunday where there's not really a lot going on i remember i would just sit on the couch and flip around the boob tube the cable and come across tnt and i'd find some kind of obscure movies from the 80s that was never really super popular and 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 so i never really heard about it but i watched it in I thought it was worth sitting through commercials to to finish it, you know, and if it was on again, I might check it out again. This is one of those movies. It just felt like it was made to be entertaining with just enough backbone to keep you wanting to see what happens. But with saying that, it's not a great movie. It is incredibly tropey. I, I definitely agree with you, Matt. You definitely have those characters that are there just to progress the story. Like the Stucky character, who is a stock character, pretty much, who is just used to only get the plot going. You know, like I was saying, he is a soldier. 
Why does he have to be like the gun-happy soldier who likes to randomly shoot the gun? Yes, there's bullets in it, but I don't know any soldier that'll shoot another soldier in the back, you know, with fake bullets, right before they're about to go into the bush for training, or into the swamp for training. I don't know, like, maybe... That's how it was back in the 70s, where people were still juvenile, naive as to what they were going to expect in Vietnam. And I guess in that context, it kind of works. But I was still looking at it like, oh, it takes place in the 80s. You know, these people are smart enough. They should know not to do that shit because they're soldiers. I would not have minded it too much if it was just that one character. But there was this other character who, who basically just goes insane and blows up one of the Cajun people's shack, you know, because that's, he just wanted to, he just wanted to blow it up with whatever dynamite he had, you know, and it just doesn't make sense, but just to piss off the Cajun people to come after and kill them even more. So, like, you know, it's, it's stuff like that that really stops the movie from progressing more than it just being entertaining to watch. So I give it 3.5 out of 5. I do recommend it, but just know what you're getting yourself into. It's not the best of Walter Hill's other action movies, but it's definitely not the worst. It's just good. So, but 3.5 out of 5 for me. Very good. Okay, well then that leaves us with Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Pirates had infected the seas for generations. So I vowed to eliminate them all. And then, there was this boy. Jack Sparrow. Follow him in! He took everything from me. And filled me with... Rage. The dead have taken command of the sea. They're searching for her, a girl, and a sparrow. I have heard stories of a mighty Spanish captain who's hunted and killed thousands of men. No, 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 men, no, 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 no. Pirates. Pirates. Knew a Spaniard named something in Spanish. He's coming for you, Jack. Where's your ship? Your crew? Your pants? Jack, move! I'm so sorry, were you still talking? Um, and this is the latest in the saga of Jack Sparrow. And basically, this movie finds uh, Will and Elizabeth's son trying to save dear old dad from his life of being uh, Davy Jones, the new Davy Jones. Okay, so at this point, it is just simply the same old tired stuff that's really gotten tired. Uh, and the funny thing was is that there were a lot of people in the theaters who were chuckling at some of the lines and stuff like that. And, you know, maybe they hadn't been like me. Maybe they hadn't watched all the five movies within the last five days. Three of these movies I've actually watched in the last two days. So, so I get it. You know, maybe they're just having a good time with it. I'm just done. It's not that they're bad. It's just that they, they have literally at this point become the epitome of, uh, of the proverbial popcorn flick. Turn your brain off, enjoy the action, and don't worry about the plot holes because 
If you do, you might fall in one and never come back out. Um, and who knows? Maybe that's what the next movie will be about. A plot hole that they can't find out. They can't find their way out of. I don't know. It's not a terrible movie. 2.75. Look all the way across the board. Ah. Um, it's, it's, it's okay. It's a little better than okay. There, there are definitely little breaths of life and, uh, little sparkles of light in there. But overall, just pretty kind of hokey. And I, I'm, I'm just kind of done. 2.75 out of 5. And I feel like I'm being somewhat generous at that. What do you got there, Tim? I'm giving it a 1.5 out of 5. And I feel like I'm being generous with that. So uh, I kind of know how you're feeling. I It's not good. It's more the same. Like, I was able to forgive on Stranger Tides. All right, was it on Stranger No, Parts of the Caribbean. The, the third one. On Stranger Tides was... Fourth one. The third one was at World's End. Yeah, at World's End. I was willing to, to excuse at World's End, you know, later on, I guess, because I really liked the first one, and I actually really liked the second one quite a bit because it was something different. The third one was something different. It was just overblown and way too long. That was really one of my main complaints, just overblown. The fourth one, hammy, horrible acting, and very convoluted. This one, very convoluted. Not necessarily hammy acting. The acting is fine. I thought main roles were were okay. The stupid frickin' goons, the pirate goons, were annoying as shit, and were just there just to be stupid. And there was a lot of, like, really dumb kid humor, but yet they were making penis jokes and boob jokes, anatomy jokes. It was very unbalanced. Some of the visuals were really cool, but some of them were really stupid and just didn't work. The movie was lazily put together, and yet I'm still giving it a higher rating than Alien Covenant. Now, why is that? It is because I knew what I was getting myself into. Alien Covenant had a chance to continue telling the original story that it was trying to tell, and it did not. And that's what I hated about it. This one, they decided to reboot it with the last one. I really didn't care for the last one, so I wasn't really expecting too much with this one. And it's just more of the same of the last one. Uh, Just a little bit more tolerable, I think. So 1.5 out of 5. Dead Men Tell No Tales. And we can look forward to seeing Pirates of the Caribbean 6, 7, and 8. I'm sure within the next four years or so. Unless Rotten Tomatoes just completely kills it. <laughs> I don't know. Judging by the audience reaction in the theater tonight, and I definitely don't feel bad because today was discount day. Um, but And I'm not going to get into it, but I, um, I'm, I, I'm definitely not going to be doing discount day in the evening during the summer anymore because there's just a whole different class of people. I had a guy that didn't know how to properly put his cup, his big old soda cup, into the soda cup holder and he didn't want to take his time while putting it in there so he would like forcefully like try to jam it in there then he would miss and just completely hit the hand rest and then like slide it around until he could actually find the cup that was the first time i ever experienced that no i just had um i mean literally i don't know it it just seems like uh i feel so bad i feel i don't know there's i don't have a nice way to say this it's just i feel classist and elitist and uh i'm definitely (laughs) neither one of those things but it just seems like the people who just don't know how to behave come out when it's cheap and 
they talk during the movie and they move around during the movie and they they let their kids be stupid during the movie. It's doing nothing but reinforcing why I don't go to the movies unless I have to. But whatever. It was $5.40. So I guess there's that. Anyway, so that brings us to the end of the movies for this week. Next week's movie, uh, because of our more in-depth discussion that we should be having about Five Came Back, is Wonder Woman. Very, very excited to see this movie. And uh, with that, I believe it's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, with the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by music partners Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. And you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter by following at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Brenton Thwaites, I get to say this. I haven't had the whole famous thing happen to me yet and I hope I never will. I like to sneak away in the corners and hide a lot. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>